Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, May 24th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. And in the mailbag, we'll discuss our most underrated directors of this moment. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on this podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, uh, some news hit yesterday afternoon after we all left the slash home offices and that is that they are making a star wars knights of the old republic movie and we know who is writing it uh yes yeah, so leta caligridis who wrote alita battle angel and also shutter island which is a movie i love you know a lot of people don't like it uh is apparently writing the first of what could be a trilogy of films based on the knights of the old republic games um which I have never played because I don't play games. I'm sorry, everyone. But uh, the, uh, I do know from my research for this that these games were very popular and people have long uh, hoped for a movie based on these games. And now it looks like it's happening. And this is something completely separate from the, the trilogy that the, the Game of Thrones guys are writing and that Ryan Johnson is presumably making. So... You know, even though Star Wars is taking a few years off from the movies after uh, 
the rise of Skywalker, they're already planning a whole bunch of new stuff over there at Lucasfilm. And this this is one of the things. Yeah, Kathleen Kennedy has said that they are planning the next decade of Star Wars films. And we really didn't know what that meant at Star Wars Celebration. Uh, I think someone asked her about uh, doing something with Knights of the Old Republic. And she said something was in the works. And now we know that something is not just a movie, but a a trilogy of movies, which is pretty insane. And I, I think we've speculated for some time that the trilogy that the Game of Thrones guys were working on could have been a Knights of the Old Republic uh, movie series, but it ter- turns out it's going to be something completely different. Uh, Jacob, I brought you on this podcast because I know you are a huge fan of this game series, and I, I know a lot of people, including myself, I'm, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, but I've never played Knights of the Old Republic, so give us the hard sell. Why, why should we care about a Knights of the Old Republic uh, uh, movie? Uh, to be specific, I'm a fan of the first game. Uh, the sequel, not so much. But the first game uh, is from Bioware, who went on to make the Mass Effect trilogy and other like clearly clean games like the Dragon Age series. And it's what it is first and foremost a great video game. Um, it has so much, so many great characters. So much, the, the RPG elements. It's very much an, a role playing game. Are really top notch. It's very customizable. Uh, it lets you explore the Star Wars world. It's really a wonderful video game, which is why I think people love it first and foremost. And the story is story is interesting, not because it's the most brilliant piece of fiction you'll ever read or experience in Star Wars universe, but because it's incredibly interactive. The basic gist of the story is that a Sith leader named uh, Darth Revan has died, and his apprentice Darth Malak has taken over. Uh, the Sith Armada, and you're thrust in the middle of a war between the Sith and the Jedi and the Old Republic, taking place thousands of years before the original trilogy. And what makes the game unique is that your character, who's Jedi in training, is either going to uh, go to the dark side or go to the light side, and you make decisions throughout the game to influence the story, and characters react to you based on your decisions you make. You see different story elements and beats play out based on whether you not make decisions that are you know, dark, light, or shades of gray. And the reason the game is so popular is because it really gave you the feeling of being in control of the Star Wars universe and being having control of your own destiny in addition to being a really solid game. So my big question here is how do you capture what makes that game special in a movie? I mean, the setting is cool, supporting cast is cool, but the protagonist is literally intended to be a blank slate that you are filling in as the player. You make the choices and you decide which story is more compelling to you if the guy becomes, you know, a Dark Lord of Sith or, you know, the ultimate Jedi Knight. So it is an incredible game, and I've played through it several times to see all the different endings, all the different options, and I've, I find both paths very satisfying. So the question for the movie is, how do you take this really, really great sandbox and find a story in that sandbox? Because right now there isn't one outside of a really cool world. Well, I think that's the problem with a lot of video game movies, right? Like, it's um, it's a different medium, and generally the main character is kind of for you to control and to you to create. I know this does it on a, you know, a much massive level, but I I wonder I wonder if approaching this, it seems like the approach to this to me would be to take that that time that uh slight that era of of the Star Wars canon and exploring that and maybe not recreating this character's story? Maybe. Uh, but at the same time, I don't understand why you would use the Knights of the Republic name if you're not going to at least 
lean on in the story because what ends up happening to your character in any variation is interesting and is worthwhile and worth spending, you know, 20 to 30 hours of your life playing that game. So I, I feel like if they didn't use the storyline here, which has various twists and turns that I won't spoil here, then you'd be doing fans of the game a disservice. But at the same time, there are so many more Star Wars fans. There are people who have played this very good video game from 2003. So I feel like maybe they will use it as a loose structure. I mean, I have my own headcanon as to what the right choice is uh, for the actual events in this game. But I'm very curious to see if Lucasfilm picks one of those to be the actual right answer. Because depending on, on where this game ends, that's, that era of the Star Wars universe goes in a very different direction. Which is why it's set so far in the past. Because that way, whatever you pick, it doesn't really affect what happens you know, in the prequels and the original trilogy. This also makes me wonder, you know, the Game of Thrones guys, we had assumed that they were making a prequel in this time in Star Wars history. Now that we know that they probably are not because they're making this other trilogy, what what do you think that means for their trilogy? Oh, man, Peter, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I, I Because even though the Old Republic isn't specifically medieval... It still has, you know, older technology. Uh, soldiers still use bladed swords. In addition to Jedi, use lightsabers. It definitely has a bit more of that medieval flair, even if it, even there aren't straight up castles. So, I think we're back to square one. I think they're doing something completely different, but I will see. I, I can't even make a good guess. I have no idea. I know we like to bag on other studios when they start to create, you know, their own cinematic universes. You know, the the the, uh, the dark universe and, and such. You know, now Lucasfilm is announcing three, not three movies that they hope to to start franchise, but three trilogies. So, Chris, are they overreaching here? Uh, I don't think so. I just just because there's so many, there's so much history with Star Wars and these stories. I mean, there's also history with the Universal Monsters, and Universal completely blew that. But. <laughs> Um, I, I think like Lucasfilm and Disney have been doing this a little longer and they, they have a better idea of how to handle things. And at the same time, nothing is a sure thing. I mean, who would have thought that Solo would have un- underperformed the way it did? Who would have thought that they would have like just stopped doing these anthology films the way they, they, they are doing now? So, you know, this could always backfire as well. But I think it's all going to depend on who they get to handle the properties um you know i have no i don't watch game of thrones so i don't really have an opinion on those guys i i like this writer's work i i really like ryan johnson so if they they're finding the right creative people it'll it might work out but you know it all depends on who does what yeah and if i if i have any real criticism of the the disney star wars films it is that they chose to go filmmaker centric and not have a grand arc vision for for their stories. I, I love that these three new franchises or three new you know uh, trilogies that they, that it's going to be filmmaker driven and you're gonna you're gonna have these people probably arcing you know creating the whole arc for these stories and it's gonna feel like more of a cohesive thing. Ben, is are you agreeing with me here? I think so. Uh, I kind of am wondering if they're overshooting a little bit, though. Um, I just feel like this is a lot, and especially to be making these announcements publicly. You know, there's one, I mean, I guess 
uh, uh, BuzzFeed broke this story, right? So I don't, I don't think Lucasfilm like put out a big announcement about it in the same way that they did with the Ryan Johnson and the Game of Thrones guys. But um, I don't know. This, this is uh, I, I was surprised when I read this that I was like, really, they're they're doing more. <laughs> like it just seems like an awful lot of stuff. And I'm wondering if this is like a contingency for. You know, if, for example, the Game of Thrones guys, their first movie is like a huge dud, then this could maybe swoop in and, you know, be like a a pivot point away from that trilogy or something like that. I I don't know. I mean, that's all speculation on my part. There's no reason to assume that that Benioff and Weiss won't um, be able to work well in this universe. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just that was my gut reaction when I heard this news. And I remember when they announced the new Star Wars dates, you you wrote up the story and you were theorizing that we might alternate between their Star Wars film and Ryan Johnson's Star Wars film. Now that we have this third one in the mix, <laughs> like does that mean that we're going to have to wait four years to get the second installment of each of these films? Yeah, that certainly throws a bone into my my uh, prediction there, because now, I mean, yeah, if you if you're cycling three trilogies at once and like dropping in an entry like every other year or whatever it was that they said they're going to do, like that's that's too much for the general public to be able to to figure out right now. It was, you know, we were only dealing with the saga movies and then the occasional spinoff and stuff. But once you add more to that, it's just going to get more confusing for the general public. Okay, let's move from one side of Lucasfilm to the other. Uh, Indiana Jones 5 is still in the works. And Harrison Ford was doing an interview where he was asked, what is the future of Indiana Jones beyond the actor himself? Chris, what do we know? Uh, According to Harrison Ford, that's it. There is no future of Indiana Jones without him. He wants the role to die with him. And I'm not even going to use his quote because you need to actually watch it to get the full effect because it's very funny just to hear grumpy Harrison Ford joke about this. Um, of, of course, it's worth noting that he doesn't have the final say and Lucasfilm could always change their minds and give it to someone else. But as far as Harrison Ford is concerned, uh, that's it. He is the beginning and end of Indiana Jones. And after he shoots Indiana Jones 5, the upcoming Indiana Jones 5, uh, that's going to be it. That's there, there will be no more Indiana Jones films. Yeah. I mean, you do say that he doesn't have the end say, but from what I understand, there is an agreement in place that there are, what, three different cooks in this kitchen. So there's Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Harrison Ford. And they, they that's that's also causing some of the trouble of why this movie's been delayed. It seems like those three people can't agree on what the future of the indie story is. So I'm wondering, you know... <laughs> Can, can does Harrison Ford have control of this franchise, and is this a smart idea? Uh, yes, it is a good idea. There should not be any more Indiana Jones films without Harrison Ford. Um, I don't think this is a role like Batman or James Bond where it would make sense to pass it on. Like Indiana Jones is so tied into who Harrison Ford is, and to have someone else play it would just be really weird. And uh, I, I personally wouldn't like it. Yeah. I think we saw that with Solo as well, so you are probably right. Although, me being an indie fan, I, I kind of wish they could do something like what they were planning with with uh, the Die Hard movie, the McQueen year one, where it's kind of, you know, indie now cut, intercut with a younger indie, introducing, I mean, you know, a new actor into that franchi- uh, franchise. And that way, you'd, you'd also get around the fact that, you know, Harrison Ford can't run around at this age as well. 
So, but uh, it looks like that's not happening. So, okay. Uh, speaking of actors uh, approaching past their prime, Sylvester Stallone has recently done an interview talking about his idea for a new Rocky movie. Penn, what is going on here? Yeah, so Stallone was at the Cannes Film Festival, and there he was doing like a career retrospective press conference Q&A kind of scenario. And somebody asked him, I guess, if he was interested in being in more of the Creed movies, and he said no. And that makes sense to me, because when Creed 2 came out, he announced that he was done playing Rocky Balboa. But he said no, and then he also followed that up with, quote, I have a great idea for Rocky. He finds this fella in the country illegally, and it becomes a whole thing. It's like the magician who lost his tricks. You've seen everything, but what can be different? Throw him out of the country. He's in another world. What's that mean? <laughs> I don't really know. I, I think trying to parse what appears to be a garbled mess of words, I think what he's saying is he has an idea for a new Rocky movie in which Rocky finds an illegal immigrant in the United States and then maybe Rocky returns with that immigrant to the home country of that person. And theoretically, I'm filling in the blanks here now, but maybe theoretically trains that person as a boxer. I don't know. Uh, guys, do you want to see more Rocky movies? I can't imagine the answer is going to be yes. But please, if somebody has an idea for why this would be a good idea, I would love to know. Rocky passed the torch to Creed. We don't need a remake of Rocky V in a different country, if that's even what he's saying. Ben and I <laughs> talked about this offline with writing the story. We have no idea what he's trying to say with this statement. It makes zero sense. And I feel like either it's been mistranslated or misquoted or Sloan is mumbling as he often does. But it's extremely frustrating that we can't report this cleanly because I have no idea what it means. I mean, I will say this. I'll play devil's advocate, guys. When Creed was first announced, I don't think we were all excited about that. That sounded like a bad idea at the time, you know, and that turned out to be amazing. Sure, but the the Rocky character has already had two huge comebacks that were completely unexpected, right? Like, nobody thought that Rocky would be able to come back in 2006 with Rocky Balboa, and that movie was, like, pretty good, like, surprisingly good for the amount of time yeah. that had passed between Rocky V and Rocky Balboa, right? So then we're like, okay, wow, yeah, Stallone, like, had more to say with this character, and he came back and actually managed to pull it off in a way that wasn't terrible. Good for him. And then the Creed movies came around, and we're like, oh, this is actually a really cool idea to sort of spin it off into its own thing, put the focus on somebody else, turn him into a supporting character. That's great. The first movie is awesome. Second movie is fine. Uh, but you're gonna you're telling me that he wants to do this again? Like, why on earth would he want to risk the legacy of this character? Who right now, even with Creed two not being nearly as good as the first movie, uh, or as Creed one, I should say, um, people still are pretty fond of this character or still look upon him uh, fondly, I guess. So why, why for somebody like Stallone, who is so concerned with these ideas of legacy and revisiting these characters over and over again, why would he not be able to sense that this is the time to go out? And it seems like he did sense that when he said he was done playing this, playing this character, but now he's, he's going to come back for this. I don't know. Ben, this is the guy that's making escape plan movies still, and no one wants escape plan movies. <laughs> Yeah, but that's different because nobody gives a shit about that. You know, it's like it's like Bruce Willis making direct-to-DVD action movies in Bulgaria or whatever. And it's like, yeah, man, get your paycheck, whatever. Nobody really, you know, it, it's not – it's the characters that 
what, I don't even know what his character's name is in Escape Plan. It's, it doesn't have the same like cultural um, penetration into the zeitgeist that Rocky does. And his name is Escape Plan, Mr. Escape Plan, <laughs> clearly. Uh, okay, let's move on. Briefly, um, when HBO's Neverland documentary series came out and it kind of had this expose on the accusations against Michael Jackson, I wondered, I think on this podcast, if... Taika Watiti's movie that he had in development, it was based on this Blacklist script uh, called Bubbles, which is telling the story of Michael Jackson through the eyes of his pet chimp. I was wondering if that was going to be canceled because it seems like Hollywood, you know, is turned the page on Michael Jackson at this point. And uh, Chris, we now know the future of this movie. What do, what do we know? Uh, there is no future of this movie. Um, the the official reason for it being over and done with is because Taiki Watiti is uh, going to Akira. He's going to shoot Akira, which I guess we'll talk about next. But so it's being listed as scheduling difficulties and him pulling out of the movie in turn made Netflix pull out of the movie and shut it down. So that's the reason they're giving officially. Uh, but... I think we can all read between the lines and guess that the other reason really is because of leaving Neverland and how Michael Jackson's legacy has just become extra radioactive this year. So, uh, like I said, read between the lines. That's probably why this is really happening. Yeah. And you mentioned Akira. This is a movie that I feel like I didn't think was ever going to happen, especially with uh, Taika. But it now has a release date. We like it seems like. It, the train is moving. But, I mean, I guess the train was moving on Gambit, too. But, uh, Ben, is this going to happen? I think it's finally going to happen, man. Uh, Warner Brothers has given a, a release date of uh, May 21st, 2021, to the Akira movie that Taika Waititi is directing. And this is nuts. It's the same weekend as John Wick Chapter 4. Uh, as Jacob alluded to in our Slack channel, one of those movies is probably going to move before all is said and done. I'm guessing it's going to be John Wick. Um, that but, seems like uh, a horrible idea to release those two on the same weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely is. But, uh, you know, there's several years in between now and then for somebody to flinch and decide to, to go elsewhere. But, yeah, this is one, I mean, this idea, like, Leonardo DiCaprio was talking about starring this, starring in this in 2008. That's how long ago Warner Brothers has been working on this movie. And now DiCaprio is just uh, still on board, but just as a producer. Um, but yeah, this is nuts. I mean, I I certainly never thought that we were going to actually see a live action version, mostly because I don't know if you guys have seen Akira, but it is a bonkers movie. Like I, I watched it for the first time, I don't know, three or four years ago and was just sort of like, my mind melted when I watched it. Like, what in the hell is this thing? And I can't imagine a major studio like Warner Brothers putting out a an accurate version, um, uh, you know, a direct adaptation. I think YTT has said in the past that he wants to do sort of his own riff on on the original manga. Um, but man, yeah, I, I mean, it is. Uh, you know how like the end of the Watchmen comic is like this insane. Uh, you know, squid creature comes in and it like destroys the psyches of like, and, you know, kills yeah. all these people. And it does it, all this it was unadaptable. Stuff. Yeah. The, the Akira watching the anime version of Akira, it felt very much the same kind of thing to me. So I don't know, Jacob, what do you think? I mean, have you seen the original Akira and what do you think about the, about YTT doing a version of it here? 
I really like the original Akira, but it's definitely it, it is two things. It is one very, very, very Japanese centric. Everything about that story is a is from Japanese storytellers telling the kind of story that's inherent to Japan and its culture. And two, as you say, it goes to extreme crazy like Cronenberg meets Michael Bay style shenanigans to hit his final act. So I know uh, there's been a lot of backlash in the past years. I know at one point it was going to be Wame Colette Sarah directing Leonardo DiCaprio in it like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the backlash has always been this is not a white person story. And now they have a person of color, Taika Waititi, doing this. But even he's not Japanese. Uh, so I'm very, very curious what the approach is because um, it's the same way that a lot of American Godzilla movies don't quite work. At least the earlier ones didn't because... Godzilla is a character rooted so much in the Japanese um, psyche and comes from the pain and trauma of the of you know the atomic attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I feel like we didn't get a good American Godzilla movie until we had 9/11 to lean on as a touchstone for Americans with Gareth Edwards' film. So it's my long-winded way of saying I, I have no idea how you take a story this Japanese and make it not Japanese, which is the only way to make a Hollywood movie like this. Okay, well I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, I know Taika's involvement gets me excited, but uh, I'm, I'm going to remain a little bit pessimistic uh, or cynical for now. Uh, let's get let's jump into the mailbag. Uh, we're going to answer a question that was, I think, submitted probably a year ago. We're, we're digging deep into this mailbag. Uh, Nick E. writes in. Uh, he's wondering. He's curious if we have any directors who you believe are not getting enough recognition for the art they put out. For example, uh, he, he mentions Denis Villeneuve, uh, who put out an ama- puts out amazing work, but no one in my circle talks about it ever. I used to think the same of Ryan Johnson and his talents got rewarded with star Wars. Um, so I guess this is an interesting question because he's not asking for up and coming up and coming filmmakers. He's asking for filmmakers who are not getting enough recognition, which means they probably have more than a couple movies. Right. Um, <laughs> and it, it, this is a tough question. I was thinking about this and my first thought was someone that actually hasn't directed a, a proper theatrical feature film. And that's hero Mirai. Uh, this is the guy that he's directed. He, he, his, Probably his claim to fame is his – I mean he was a music video director, but his claim to fame is his collaboration with uh, Donald Glover. And uh, he's you know worked on Atlanta. He's done director – he's directed episodes of Barry, uh, Legion. He did that uh, Guava Island, which I haven't seen. Um, but even though he hasn't directed a film, I feel like a lot of people are not talking about this guy. Um I don't know. I I feel like he has a huge future in films coming up, and I, I feel like he should be like one of those guys that's announced for a Marvel movie. And I I haven't heard him in the conversation for anything, which is kind of strange. Maybe that's because he's saying no to it all. Who knows? Um, the the other person I wanted to mention is Alex Garland, who did Ex Machina and Annihilation, and he was a screenwriter before that, and uh, he's just doing fantastic work, which is acclaimed in the critic circles but is not you know making money at the box office and he is notoriously uh very opinionated uh, very much an auteur and i think probably that's why you know he's not being offered a star wars or marvel movie 
Um, you know, he, he very much has his vision. Uh, Chris, who, who would you say is an underrated filmmaker who, who, who's, who needs more recognition? Uh, let me just let me just first preface this by saying I'm a little alarmed, Peter, that your two criteria here is that neither of these guys are being offered no, Marvel movies. Well, and no, so that, 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 that's not my criteria, but I'm saying uh, that people are not seeing their movies. It, no, I know what you're saying. Well, well, first of all, Hero doesn't have a movie, but uh, Alex Garland, his most successful movie is what? Ex Machina, maybe? Annihilation? I'm not even sure. I, I, have to look at I mean, I don't know if yeah. either of those were what I would call successful hits. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, um, my pick would be uh, James Gray, who is a director who is really well known in like indie film circles, but I don't think anyone really knows who this guy is. He's He directed uh, The Immigrant and We Own the Night. Uh, he has a, a new movie coming out at some point called Ad Astra. He is a phenomenal filmmaker he's he makes very low-key i don't even want to call them quiet because they're not quiet because they have you know they they will have like action and violence in them but it's not like what you're used to he directed a movie called the lost city of z which is phenomenal um no one really talks about this guy or his films and he he has this really unique uh eye in this 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 storytelling sense, which you think, you know, where like what kind of story you're getting into. Like, you know, we own the night. It came out kind of soon after the departed and it had Mark Wahlberg in it, who was also in the departed and all the marketing tried to sell it as sort of like the departed 2.0. And even though it's like a crime movie and even though it involves cops and, you know, people undercover, it's not like the departed at all. It's like a completely different, uh, movie and just I just really wish more people would talk about his work and would just know who he is but I don't know if that'll ever happen <laughs> Chris I have to admit I've only seen We Own the Night of all of his movies uh, where would you recommend that I jump in beyond that uh, I would definitely recommend Lost City of Z that's really good uh, go with that he has, he has a whole bunch of stuff but Lost City of Z and We Own the Night would be like my top two picks for like a great example of what kind of work he does. Cool. Jacob, who are your picks? Uh, my first pick is a director who I think may be my favorite uh, working director who is not appreciated by mass audiences, and that's Ben Wheatley, the English filmmaker behind the maybe my favorite horror movie of the past 20 years, Kill List, uh, one of my favorite films of all time. Very slow burn, very terrifying, very upsetting. But he's very versatile. He also made a crime comedy called Down Terrace, a spectacularly funny pitch black comedy called Sightseers that, if it had the Coen Brothers name on it, would have been a cult classic by now. Uh, the really trippy, weird experimental field in England, High Rise with Tom Hiddleston, which is this really ambitious adaptation of the J.G. Ballard novel that kind of came and went. Uh, Free Fire, extremely violent, dark comedy that bombed very hard despite a very large cast and a big marketing push. And that was supposed to be his big breakout, and it didn't quite happen. And he has a new movie coming out soon called Happy New Year, Colin Burstead. And he, he keeps getting attached to things, uh, like as a remake of Rebecca, a horror um, action movie called Freak Shift. He was even attached to a remake of Wages of Fear at one point. But I feel like Ben Wheatley is always working on the fringes. Maybe he likes it that way. I don't know. But I feel like he directed two episodes of Doctor Who in 2014. It's like more people have seen his Doctor Who episodes than maybe all the rest of his movies combined. And I think he's a spectacularly talented guy, and he 
the ability to jump between thrillers, horror, comedy, experimental film, it all blows me away. Even when his movies are weaker than others, he's such a distinctive, strange voice, and I, I adore his work. Uh, I also want to talk about Nacho Vigilando, the Spanish filmmaker who broke out with time crimes in 2007, and then didn't take off the way I think a lot of people expected to. Time crimes is this very low budget, very small, like three location time travel thriller or with these, this undercurrent of great, great dark comedy. They made movies like Extraterrestrial, which is good, Open Windows, which is pretty good. And more importantly, he made um, Colossal three years ago with Anne Hathaway, the uh, giant monster comedy with Anne, uh, Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis. And Colossal, I thought that would be the movie that got him on the map and got him like being offered all the big stuff. And it really wasn't. It kind of came and went. And I think Colossal is a spectacular movie. And he has such a offbeat, wry, funny, humanistic tone to his uh, genre efforts that I'm waiting for somebody to realize that he should be directing something bigger. I really like Time Crimes. I liked um, his short films. I liked. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel Colossal is good, but it's not as accessible. I feel like that's the problem with Nacho is he's making films for a niche. Yeah, maybe. But I also feel like there should be a smart executive who realizes that he's making these niche movies so extremely well. That he could that, that his voice could translate to something maybe a bit more populous. I, I I think he needs not a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie, but yeah. he needs to be given like fifty million dollars to make something more sizable than he is yeah. now. By the way, I want to defend myself again because I feel like I'm getting attacked for this. <laughs> but the, the writer, uh, the person that wrote in, Nick E, specifically pointed out Ryan Johnson in getting a Star Wars movie. So that's where I was coming from. So I did I didn't even have to be an attack, Peter. I didn't, uh, but... Okay. <laughs> But yeah, I, I, I don't want Ben Wheatley or or Nacho to be make to, to make a Star Wars movie. I think they'd probably be wrong for it. But I, I do think that somebody I, I would watch the up. hell out of a Nacho Star Wars movie. <laughs> yeah, a Ben Wheatley movie that's just a stormtrooper trapped under a wreckage of a star destroyer starving to death. I'd, I'd watch that. Yeah, <laughs> Ben, what about you? Uh, well, you took mine, Peter, which was Alex Garland, but I've come up with a few more since then. Uh, Drew Goddard is the big one for me. He wrote Cloverfield uh, and he directed The Cabin in the Woods and Bad Times at the El Royale. I feel like he's two for two as a director, um, even though I like Cabin in the Woods a little bit more than Bad Times. But he he's terrific. And, you know, I've been following his career for a long time. And, uh, you know, he's known, but not nearly as known as somebody like J.J. Abrams, who uh, Nick E also mentioned in his email. Um, Jeff Nichols is another really great one. Uh, I loved Take Shelter and Mud, which are two smaller movies that he made. I wasn't crazy about Midnight Special, but there's a lot of promise there. And um, I, I haven't seen Shotgun Stories or uh, Loving, which is his most recent movie. But just the um, the specificity of of his filmmaking uh, and the consistent quality across you know across his filmography, uh, I, I think, is worth making sure that he's on your list if you're looking for, you know, directors who don't have en enough recognition. Um, Shane Carruth is another one. Uh, you guys were talking about uh, time crimes. Uh, Shane Carruth directed Primer, which is another uh, low budget time travel movie that I'm sure if you're any kind of cinephile, you's, you've at least heard of, if not tried to watch several times and figure out what the hell is going on in that movie. Um, I feel like less talked about is his second feature, which is Upstream Color, which is sort of this... Um, like poetic masterpiece that I still don't know if I fully understand, but is uh, it is a hell of a movie. So um, I think he's only directed two features. I should have looked that up beforehand, but I think you know he's I, one I of those guys. Right. Yeah, he's one of those guys that you know 
stories will crop up every few years like oh man Shane Carruth is gearing up for another movie and everybody's like holy shit when is this going to happen and it just sort of doesn't so I don't know I, I feel like I've heard stories that he has other jobs and other kinds of work that he does and he just sort of makes movies when he wants to make them which is like a great place for him to be in and um, a great place for the audience his his fans to be in frankly because that means that he's not just like doing something just to check off a box he's only making projects that he's really really passionate about so um, put him on your radar for sure. I will say this I saw Primer at the 2004 Sundance Film Festival was blown away I love Shane's work but I think Shane makes Nacho Vigilando like look like Steven Spielberg in accessibility. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean. yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, these movies are are very. Um, I mean, they are they are his voice, and they are like <laughs> almost impenetrable to to some degree, but they're also just accessible enough that it makes you want to understand them. It's not like something that. For me, anyway, I'm sure everybody's mileage may vary here, but I I never watch his movies and go, oh, fuck this guy. Like, this is pretension. This is nonsense, whatever. I, I'm always like, um, there's enough there emotionality wise and all that to to sort of pull me into the worlds that he creates. So um, you, you check know, out, yeah. there's a uh, screenplay that he's written that's been floating around for years called Atopiary. And apparently it is an extremely ambitious $150 million science fiction adventure film that no studio wants to touch because it's so risky. Yeah, and it, it, it's out there. It, it, it exists in script form. So this is my call to slash film readers. If you happen to have a PDF of a topiary, send it our way, please. Yeah, or if you happen to be somebody in the industry who, uh, you know, who works for somebody important, put that script on their desk, too, and maybe this movie will actually get financed. And then uh, just two more quick names. Uh, Leslie Headland, who directed um, several of the episodes of Russian Doll. She co-created that show with Amy Poehler and uh, Natasha Leone. She's great. She made a movie called Sleeping with Other People that I really like, sort of a, um, a low-key rom-com movie. I feel like she probably should be in more of these types of conversations. And then Justin Simeon, who's only made one movie, uh, Dear White People, in I think that was 2014. But he has since gone on to turn Dear White People into a Netflix show that is really, really, really good. And uh, I think one of Netflix's best original shows and something that, especially after the second season, for some reason, people just didn't really talk about it. And it's so, so good. So he has a new movie coming up. I think it's called Bad Hair that he is either filming or in post-production on right now. And I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that that one is just as good as what he's done already. So that's Justin Simeon. Put his name on your list, too. Very cool. I think that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. If you have a question that you'd like to hear answered in the mailbag, send it to us at peter at slashfilm.com. All the stories we talked about in today's podcast, you can find in the show notes and on slashfilm.com. This podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Tuesday.